Hi, you're listening to audio from Rock Hill Church. To check out more resources, please visit rockhilllawrence.com. Thank you for joining us. Good morning, everyone. Happy New Year. Happy Epiphany. You know, this is the second day of Epiphany. Dalton and Andrew, thank you. Um, I was worshiping, and Dalton and Hannah, thinking of you, um, as I was, thank you for the way you've led us so much, so often, Dalton, in worship, and um, four weeks from today, we're going to be commissioning Dalton and Hannah. Uh, they're going to be moving to Southeast Asia, um, maybe in February, correct? Possibly? Yeah, hopefully. That was a hopefully. Pull this up a little bit. So mark your calendar. That'll be February the 4th. We'll spend that morning around that together. And uh, they're going to, we'll say a lot more about this, obviously, as we get closer, but they're going means we're going uh, to where they're going in heart and spirit and prayer and and maybe ever once in a while in body for some of you. So I want to transition, uh, I want to transition to be soft this morning um, as we transition from a season of Advent to Epiphany and I want us to continue to worship for a minute. We're going to do, we've just done it with the words in a song. We're going to spend just a minute or so with those, some, a few of those same words that we just did. So um, I was, was just be quiet together for 30 or 40 seconds with these words and let them be prompters for, for worship. In the quiet, and then Sarah, I didn't tell you this when I when I lumbered back there a few minutes ago and turned the power off to the sound uh, during that last song. Um, after about thirty or forty seconds, go to the next slide. After that, with you, I think it's number ten, but uh, and we'll spend thirty or forty seconds with that one too. So let's. Uh, I'm gonna sit down and let's just be quiet together and reflect in these words and let them move us. What's what's more to worship.
Lord, we make that our prayer. We ask that you would fill us with wonder. We've come out of a season of wonder. Most of us have probably come out of a season of wondering what's next, too. Lord, we pray that whatever is next, this morning, if nothing else, we would learn this gift of the Magi that they have bestowed upon the church to chase you down and worship you. Lord, whether this year brings prosperity or suffering, likely both, we ask, God, that we would be shaped most by our worship. And that in that reality, we would become as the one we worship in greater measure. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So as Dalton said earlier, today's the last day of the, our Christmas season. We did six weeks of Advent. We never had done that before. We've been, we've been kind of reflecting on, thinking about six principal figures of Advent. And then the, if you follow the church calendar, some of us have really been trying to be a little more intentional about that. Most of us, I know a few of you did, uh, grow up in a tradition that kind of made more of the Christian calendar. Uh, I did not. Many of us did not. Uh, but I've been trying to uh, get attuned to that a little bit more. And it's been like really beneficial to me. Um, I've, I've kind of simmered in it slowly. I just didn't just dive in over the past few years. I've just been like gotten curious about it and like what benefit would that be to me? It, I think growing up, those of my friends who were about it, it didn't seem particularly meaningful for them, so I didn't really know what, what benefit, but it's really been helpful for me. I won't go into all that now, but we are in Epiphany now, which actually yesterday was the first day of Epiphany, and we have 60 days of it in, on, as, as it stands on the calendar, or, or so, so it leads up to Lent, so it depends on when Lent starts, that's the next season, which goes to Easter, which goes to ordinary time for about a long time, and then it goes into Advent. So that's the calendar and uh, bird's eye view. We've been reflecting on these principal figures. So we started with the Holy Spirit. We, we, we thought and looked at him as the principal mover, the guiding force in the Christmas story. We looked at John the Baptist. We listened to his call to repentance. Um, it was so enlightening to be here from George that in the culture he grew up in the Middle East, in the church there, repentance was really the focal point of Advent. That was interesting to me. We also saw John's humility, how he made so much and pointed to Christ. We looked at Mary, someone we're very familiar with, but we thought about together how she's much more than just a vehicle carrying the baby, she certainly was that. We don't make less of that. But we saw her brilliance. We saw her artful reflection. I don't know if you guys have seen the uh, Chosen 
episode where Mary's older and she meets with Mary Magdalene. She sends for her. Have y'all seen that moment? Anybody seen it? Yeah, a couple of you. So check that out. I don't. I have no idea what. I think it's in season two, but I could be wrong. Or episode. Do you know? I don't either. But you have to watch it. Mary's probably in her fifties, I would guess, and she sends for for Mary Magdalene. The church has been birthed. There's persecution going on, and there's this unbelievable exchange. Of course, it's not like right out of scripture. It's in, just in the imagination of the producer of the show. But she gives a gift to Mary Magdalene. Actually, she gives two. One's for the church that she needs to take, for Mary Magdalene to take to Luke. The other one's just for Mary Magdalene. And it's, boy, it's, it'll, uh, it'll move you to tears, perhaps. It's really wonderful. Uh, then we move to the shepherds. Uh, we, we, we never know what to do quite with the shepherds. They're kind of still figures, you know, in our nativity set. And, uh, but we've, we've considered that they're a lot more than stinky uh, bumpkins out in the fields. They have a lot. They're kind of these blessed recipients of this revelation, this announcement of the, re- the arrival of the Messiah King, and they come empty-handed to him because as their job has been to pre- prepare sacrificial lambs, now they need none as they come to the perfect spotless Lamb of God they come to a new temple. We didn't talk about that. The new temple being in the center of this stable, the Holy of Holies. There's the baby there. And so the new revolution begins with that moment. The shepherds are the ones who are out blasting that uh, in Bethlehem after that happens. And then we looked at the center focal point, Jesus, the true light. John gives him that nickname. We reflected on the vital action of receiving him, kind of, kind of staying with the shepherds there and receiving him. Like we don't really give out well unless we've received. Today we finish. Uh, we're going to go to the Matthew story. Luke is the one whose story probably gets told most. I mean, it's the one Linus uses. And uh, so Luke gets a lot of press. Uh, Luke's the most prolific Christmas writer. But Matthew's different. His story has a little bit different angle, as you would expect from a different gospel writer. With Matthew, there's no mention of no room in the inn. There's no shepherds in his story at all. There's no manger. There's no Roman census. And there's really very little attention given to Mary. At times, it seems, and you can check this out on your own. We are going to read a good bit of it here in a second. But it seems like Matthew may be looking at the nativity scene through a little bit more through the eyes of Joseph. Joe the carpenter. Or more likely, as we use the word, Joe the stonemason. It was likely what he did more. Joe doesn't get much attention in a lot of Christmas stories, which is probably exactly how he would want it. Um, But he's got a role. It's probably a little bit more of a supporting role, but reading Joe's story in Matthew really makes us want to cheer for him. He's important. We want to say, come on, Joe, you can do it. 
Cindy and I watched this version of Nativity on BBC Channel. I don't know if any of you have seen it. I may have mentioned it last week, or maybe I did, not remember. But it's called just the Nativity. It's not the Nativity story. Uh, That was a pretty popular one several years ago. This is just called the Nativity, and it's a British version. It's really interesting. In that, in that, it's a four-episode, four thirty-minute episodes. Joseph is really struggling throughout. He's struggling to believe Mary in in this episode, all the way through to the birth, not just initially, but all the way through. And that's just their angle on it, their interpretation. But that made me want to cheer for him all the more. Come on, Joe, get your head up, you know, (laughs) keep your chin up. Uh, You can do this. Stay with her. Stay in your lane. And Joe has kind of become to us like good old unsuspecting Joseph. Uh, He gets drawn into something he didn't sign up for. And that's true. But he finds himself in this drama of the arrival of Yahweh, who's come in the flesh. Gosh, it's amazing. Another thing about Matthew, moving on from Joseph, he also, he's the only one, by the way, who introduces to this other unsuspecting group of characters, unlikely candidates for worshiping the Messiah, the Magi, you know them. They're also up on our mantles. (laughs) There's still figures up there. No one really sees these guys coming at all into the story. Last time we talked about the response of the Shepherds receiving, we made, tried to make much of that. Uh, the Magi have a different lesson for us. They're not as much about receiving. They're telling a different story. So let's hear from them. Matthew chapter 2. I'm going to read, I think it's the entire chapter. It'll be up there on our new projector, by the way. New year, new projector. You can see me today, by the way, because we have new spotlights, new year. You might notice the stage is brighter this morning. Hey, let's stand together and read Matthew 2. Um, I'll read it for you. You can take it in. I mean, you're always invited to read out loud with me. It doesn't matter to me. But uh, let's hear Matthew tell the story. It says, after, so we're going we're gonna to enter after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. In the day of King Herod, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is this one who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard of this, he was greatly disturbed, and he noted this, all of Jerusalem with him. So he gathered all the high priests and scribes of the law to inquire where the Christ was to be born. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, so it was written through the prophet, you, Bethlehem of the land of Judea, are by no means least among those who rule in Judea. For out of you a ruler will come who will be a shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and learned from them the time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, Let me know, so that I may go and worship him too. So the Magi went out, and they saw the star they had seen in the east. It had gone ahead of them and stopped 
above the house or above where the child was. When they saw this, they were overjoyed. They came to the house. They saw the child and his mother, Mary. Bowing down, they worshiped. They opened their treasures, giving him gifts of gold, incense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left and went back another way to their country. And after they had left, and then Matthew inserts this word that it always means like, wake up and pay attention. Behold, he says, an angel of the Lord came to Joseph in a dream, saying, rise up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and stay there until I tell you, for Herod intends to find the child and destroy him. So he rose up, he took the child and his mother at night and went to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death. And so the word of the Lord spoken through the prophet was fulfilled. So many things going on here. Out of Egypt I've called my son. When Herod saw that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was utterly furious and set out to kill all the children under two years old in Bethlehem. We need to, we need to spend some time with that sometime. This, this really dark side in the, in the Christmas story, the pain that this brought. He killed to kill all the children under two years old in Bethlehem and the surrounding region according to the time given to him by the Magi. So the word spoken through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping with great grieving. Rachel weeping for her children, unwilling to be comforted, for they are no more. And then Matthew uses the behold word again. After Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord came again to Joseph in a dream in Egypt, saying, Rise up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those seeking the life of the child are dead. So this is probably about two years now after Jesus was born, best, best as historians can tell. So he took the child and his mother and entered Israel. But hearing that Archelaus was ruling Judea and the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go back. And once again being warned in a dream, he went into the region of Galilee and settled in a city called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. So much going on here, so much converging, so much foretold, so much happening. Man, you can have a seat. Let's go on. <clears throat> so the Magi, they're odd but important characters in this story. Like, like the shepherds, they show up each year in our nativity sets. They're those still figures. But they, don't, they do belong at the nativity and they don't. They really belong there because they come worshiping the child, and so we, we want them there. But they weren't there at the birth. Jesus was a toddler when they show up. We have a song about them, you know, that if you were in the, ever in middle school, you change the words and talks about three kings smoking rubber cigars. Anybody ever seen that one? That's what church kids do, I guess. But they weren't kings. And they probably weren't three of them. 
three got assigned because they brought three gifts. So that makes sense. They could have been three. More likely, they were probably a school of magi that traveled together. We don't know the number, but probably more than three. So there's some like lore about them that's not quite right. It's not maybe that important, but we still don't know quite what to do with these guys. They become sort of the mystery guest at the nativity set. They're still figures. So let's see if we can bring them to life uh, a little bit. Well, we know this. They're from the east. That much is clear. Probably Babylon or Persia. Uh, we also know a little bit about their practice. They, we might think of them today, although it doesn't quite fit, but we might think of them as astrologists. Uh, they're sort of, we might, sometimes they get called pseudoscientists. I don't really like that because pseudo means false. Uh, they would have been highly respected scientists in that time and in that culture. They were stargazers, but they were more than stargazers. They got called wise men for a reason. Uh, they knew a lot. They studied a lot. They gave their life to study and reflection, and they watched the planets and the stars and tried to interpret it, including when in, what they saw as a new star rising up. To them, that meant something. It meant new king, new star, new leader. And they saw this star rising over Israel. They saw it. It was a peculiar sight. Some people think if you have seen some of the movies, I think it was a aligning of some planets. And that, that may have been. Um, but they see this rising star, and it was a sign. So they set out. And probably in the neighborhood of 800 miles. So this is not like, you know, get your water bottle and you know, your one camel and go to Israel. It was a long way. And when they arrive in Jerusalem, they wind up in the royal court of Herod. I think the fact that they wind up there, that Herod hears about them and sends for them, may say something about their status. They were respected people. In Herod, I don't think they understood who they were dealing with at first. It didn't take long for that to change. I think they probably read him pretty quick. He's now in his fourth decade of rule. He's going to die in about two years. He was a sick, paranoid bully. He had a terrible, violent streak. He had fits of insanity. He had his favorite wife and two, at least two sons murdered because he felt like they wanted his throne Magi, what are we to make of the story? There's some facts about them. What can we take from them? Let's spend the rest of our time on that. So I think I want to make the first, so I have three things to say about that. Surprise, three points. First one I want to introduce in a question. Why are they here? I mean, who belongs in this story and who doesn't if they're in it? They're Gentiles. That's something important to know. These Magi are Gentiles. By anyone's definition in Jesus' tribe, they don't belong here. They're truly outsiders in every sense of the word. They fit no one's expectations of belonging. If Messiah's king coming, no one would have thought of them as being 
a meaningful part. They're Gentiles for crying out loud. Not only they're just Gentiles, they're magi. Some would have seen them in their community as sorcerers, wizards. Whatever, however you saw them, one thing was certain, they held worldviews that were very different from the Jewish worldview. They had all kinds of beliefs that were not orthodox. The religious right did not hold them. Just put it that way. But here they are, traveling 800 miles, seeking, finding, and worshiping Jesus. I mean, let that sit with you. A skylight has been guiding them, and here they are. Matthew, this very Jewish writer, I mean, just listen to him quote this prophecy. His gospel was sent to a Jewish audience. But with this one story, he's become a scandalous gospel writer by including the Magi. These Easterners worshiping this Jewish Messiah King. The Magi. You know, if we're aware of the biblical story, there's a sense in which we shouldn't be surprised. We find this often in the story of God. God showing himself to people who aren't considered who belonging. Who aren't qualified. Who don't fit. They, they turn out often to be the ones, in fact, who are the ones moving toward God. While those considered in the right often behave completely out of sync with the character of God. It's a common reality in the story of God and his people. God making himself known. Now, the religious right people are in the story. They're kind of lurking in the shadows here, but they are there. We can't miss them. They're the scribes and the chief priests. They're not front and center. I doubt any of you have them in your nativity set, the scribes and the chief priests, but they're there. They're in the shadows. But isn't it a, a bit odd that these learned men who had given their lives to studying the Old Testament, men who knew a Messiah was foretold, who knew this Messiah would be born in Bethlehem from the prophecy, they're noticeably absent in this important time. We don't find them at the stable. They don't seem curious or interested in worshiping. They had their scriptures, they knew them, but all we really see is them quoting some prophecy to Herod on demand, and then they fade out. There's simply no room for them in the story before the, because their interest is in something different than worshiping. They have interest, but it's not in that. But not the Magi. They're not fading at all. They're on a hunt. They're chasing this Messiah. First it was the shepherds. That was Luke's group of unqualified ones, the shepherds, and now the magi, and then Matthew wants us to see them. He spends a whole chapter on it. So I think we have to ask, what's here for us? What do we need to see? What, what do the magi want to say to us? 
Well, we'll let the Holy Spirit guide that, but perhaps God would have us see people in our pathways, in our lives who may not be so tidy and orthodox in their beliefs. People who may have felt condescended by or judged by people in the church, but who may, who may very well be the ones on the hunt, looking, looking for truth, looking for meaning, looking for purpose, looking for the true light, for a real prince of peace in their lives. Throughout history, God's been showing up for these people. He's been making himself known to them in all kinds of places. So it shouldn't surprise us that it's here. Remember what the angel said to the shepherds. Behold, I give you good tidings of great joy that will be for all people. Man, history has proven that pronouncement to be spot on. 2,000 years, all kinds of people considered not worthy of belonging have found it. They've become Jesus' apprentices. They've discovered him. Jesus once said the good news of the kingdom is being proclaimed. People are elbowing their way in. You know, you have to elbow your way in when you don't belong. You have to force your way in. Well, Jesus seemed really proud of that. People are doing whatever it takes. I think that's where the Magi. We got to go 800 miles to chase this Messiah King down. There's something in them that like moved them to do that. That's point number two. It's short and to the point. It's worth noting that this was no easy endeavor for the Magi to go to Bethlehem. Like I said, we don't know exactly where they came from, but it's really clear it was a long ways away. And even though flying is hard, Chris and Allie were supposed to get here Friday night. They got here last night. That's normal when you fly across the country. That's not like traveling 800 miles whether it's on a camel or a horse, a donkey, or on foot. This was a treacherous trip for them. You can guarantee it. It would have been rough. The terrain was rough. We know that. The weather was sketchy there, not to mention bandits. Often would have been lurking. Months. We're talking months of travel. There's considerable risk to do what they did. They took a risk to go to Israel. That's the point. That's the point. There's another big risk they took. It's in the story. You know it. You see it, right? What's Herod tell them? Come back and report. When the king of a region says, come back and report, you go back and report. Especially a king who's nuts and has a history of killing people, even in his own family. Well, the Magi don't go back and report. That's risky. Do you think they got hunted down? We don't get that part of the story, do we? But they don't go back. They blatantly disobeyed his order. Maybe they'd come to realize no matter what we do here, we don't win with Herod. 
We go back, we don't win. We get out of here, we probably won't win. But there was something that mattered to him and that to them, and that was fidelity to Jesus. And we're not going to risk the life of this Messiah King. So, here's the point. The Magi become for us, maybe in some ways more than anyone in the story, models of discipleship. Models of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Because these guys are boldly chasing Jesus down. Pursuing him at great risk to themselves. So let's let them have their say with this question. What are we chasing? What are we chasing? What are we going to chase this year? What are we going to try to chase down? What What are you chasing now? I don't think they're encouraging us to do something reckless or stupid to prove to ourselves or each other that we're chasing Jesus. I think they're just asking, what is it that we're seeking with our lives? What are we about? What's driving us? What's our heart wrapped around? What is our will engaged toward? What are you chasing? Jesus had something to say about that, did he not? Don't store up treasures for yourself where moth and rust destroy, where thieves are going to break in and steal. Store up for yourselves that which lasts. He's not condemning storing up. He says, if you're going to treasure, treasure that which will last. So he says, you want to chase something? Chase the kingdom of God and its righteousness. And those other things you're tempted to chase, they'll find their place. Chase that, will, that which will not fail you. So if we're chasing our careers or our homes or our families or the Jayhawks or dare I say the Wildcats or dare I really say the Tigers, <laughs> the Sooners, thank you, or whatever it is, you know, our, our own uh, success, prosperity, whatever it is we're chasing. And we do, I mean, I'm not pointing fingers. I'm, there's, there's four pointing back or however many that works out. What are we chasing? They're asking us, what are we willing to do? What are we willing to risk? What are we willing to pursue? What are we willing to seek in order to be with Jesus? In order to see him? In order to be with God? What's the cost of our discipleship? I think that's the central lesson of the Magi. Let these guys become heroes on the nativity set. Not still figures you don't know what to do with. Tell your children stories about them. One more lesson. We'll be done. Point three comes along the line to the opening question, gift giving. I think there's a contrast. Whether or not Matthew is doing it purposefully, I don't know. 
I think, I think he actually makes a couple contrasts with the Magi. But one of them I think that's really interesting is the, the Magi and the shepherds. The shepherds, as we've talked about, they go to see Jesus empty-handed. They, they come as they are. They come with nothing. There is no need for them to bring one of their spotless lambs. The truly spotless lamb was in the stable, as I mentioned. They, and they worship this perfect lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. They worship. I mean, I wonder, I just can't imagine. I mean, do you not want to meet one of these rascals in heaven? I'm going to have a conversation with them. I mean, it may take me a million years to get to them. I don't know how that works. But I want to ask them, like, what was that like? Like, what was in your thoughts? The Magi are different. They don't come empty-handed, do they? Their hands are full. They come with gifts. Costly gifts. Expensive gifts. Gifts that they offer and bring them to Jesus, which moved them to worship. When they gave that gift, worship followed. When they, when they laid down what was valuable and costly and expensive and meaningful to them, in front of that baby, it, it just naturally put them on their knees, I think. So I think the shepherds and the magi both want to talk to us about this. Because in a sense, both are true. We come to Jesus with nothing. We have nothing to give him that he needs. We have nothing that's worthy of him. So there's a sense in which we just come broken, sinful people as we are. But then the magi would say, wait a minute. You bring your best. Little drummer boy, you play your best. You bring all that you are, all that you have, you bring that to him, and you lay it down. You offer yourself as a living sacrifice. See, the sacrificial system didn't get done away with with Jesus. It got given to us as a gift. The sacrifice is now us that we lay down. And that which we bring, we take our hands off of it. And so then we become, with the shepherds, empty-handed. It comes full circle. It's all yours, God. You alone are worthy of everything we have. So if we're chasing other things, we're not going to be able to do that. If we're holding on to our gifts... Our lives, our ambitions, our careers, our loves. We're not going to be able to do what the Magi did. We're not going to be able to lay that down and worship like they did. We won't know it. But when we let go of it and we lay it there, it'll take you to your knees. And you'll say, oh man, that was a good trade. That was worth it. Because laying all we are before God, it changes us. It changes us. 
And yes, we have to keep doing it. Because it doesn't change us and we just stay in that state, do we? We start picking them back up again. Putting them in our pockets. Wanting to take them with us. So we come back and we keep giving them. And it changes us anew. And over time, we find ourselves being changed in a deeper way, little by little. So I think the Magi teach us we don't come before uh, the Lord glibly, haphazardly, carelessly. We come as we are, simply, but we also come aware that we have baggage, that we have things in our possession that God's asking for, that he wants us to lay down. And he says, get the vision of the Magi, because if you'll do that, you will become, you'll start becoming like that which you are worshiping. Let it do its work. There's the Magi. I like those guys. Something to say to us. But they, if they were here, they'd go, stop it. Talk about the one we were worshiping. That's where we reorder our lives. Not by her, the heroism of some strange figures, but by, by the one we worship. So let's do that. We're, we're going to end with worship. And Dalton, I'll let you and Andrew lead as you want. We've got time to do so. Let's worship. Come on up, guys. <laughs>